0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast, I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Supreme Court Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch traded places in a manner in a criminal sentencing case, with Ginsburg joining the conservatives in the majority and Gorsuch joining the liberals in the minority in a 5-4 decision on supervised release that that could have the effect of keeping defendants locked up longer. Joining me is Douglas Berman, a professor at Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University. So Doug, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion that was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, Justices Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's a bit technical. Can you explain the reasoning briefly?
1: It's actually very technical. It has to do with the issue of when a defendant, after he's already served a federal sentence and is now on what's known as supervised release, which is when he's being uh, watched closely in community su- supervision, if he goes and commits another crime, he can get prosecuted for that other crime, and in the state system, he you know often will. But then the time he served in pretrial detention uh, while dealing with that other crime does that count as fulfilling his time on supervised release in the federal system, or rather? Is that time told? In other words, he doesn't get credit for while he's locked up and supervised, mm. uh, locked up in pretrial detention for this period of supervision. And so, uh, the statute that controls supervised release says, if you're in prison, you don't get credit for that time. But what was unclear is, what if you're in prison before you've been convicted, rather than for serving another uh, prison sentence? And that's what divided the court in this unusual way this issue of statutory interpretation for this, you know, very technical question of uh, when it's a certain kind of imprisonment, pre-trial detention, uh, do you count that as serving part of your supervised release, or is that told instead?
0: So do you understand, or can you figure out why Ginsburg joined the conservatives and Gorsuch the liberals in this case?
1: Not really, or at <laughs> least there's nothing expressed in the opinion You know, when I first saw the breakdown, I'm like, well, maybe it's a particular theory of statutory interpretation. You know, oftentimes uh, the justices have different approaches to interpreting statutes that don't break down on the usual ideological lines. And my guess is that's probably the closest I can come up with for a theory of this, that just um, Justice Ginsburg thought this was a more natural reading of the statute and so more inclined to have a kind of pro-government position, whereas Justice Gorsuch, who actually has been – fairly pro-defendant's rights uh, in a lot of settings um, may well have thought uh, it just wasn't clear enough. And um, you know, he's very much in Justice Scalia's tradition, where if the statute's not clear, uh, the defendant, the individual, should always win over the government uh, in a criminal justice setting. And so I can I can sort of explain a little bit more why I think Gorsuch may have gone uh, with the dissenters that with the more pro-defendant approach, okay. while Justice Ginsburg's with the majority's rough. Go for it. Well, again, you know, the explanation for Justice Gorsuch is he's he's uh, disinclined to um, allow government power unless uh, the government is clearly in statute or in other ways, you know, expressed uh, the proper exercise of that power. So, you know, he kind of thinks that tie goes to the defendant uh, approach, even though he's conservative in other in other kinds of settings. And there's obviously a whole a whole wing of sort of libertarian conservative thought that thinks that's That's what being a true conservative is. You don't let the government have power unless they're they're perfectly clear and perfectly legal in the way they do it.
0: Criminal cases often end up with the justices in unusual ideological groupings. Why is that?
1: I think it's a function of the fact that you know, conservatives, though they tend to be historically, and especially more recently, you know, for more punishment and sort of tougher on crime politically, uh, they still also tend to believe in smaller government, believe in limiting government, think it's really important uh, that constitutional principles uh, constrain what government officials are able to do. And so for a lot of different conservatives, those will play out in criminal cases in sort of competing ways. And I think especially with uh, Justice Gorsuch, we'll see with Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, it's true for Justice Thomas a fair amount as well. Uh, when there are particular provisions of the Constitution that concern them, that they think are especially important to safeguard, uh, they'll end up voting for defendants uh, over over the sort of tough on crime attitude that we think is is pervasive uh, in in a conservative ideology. And then conversely, for some liberals, it can work the other way. They may be more comfortable with broader grants of government power, even when that power extends to the operation of the criminal justice system. So there can be certain kinds of cases, certain procedural issues uh, where liberals are more in favor to, uh, of government power uh, than the conservatives are. And I sometimes say it, it keeps my job interesting because <laughs> you can't always predict every vote like you can That's in some That's true.
0: Way. Now, you've said uh, to Bloom- in a Bloomberg News uh, interview that this atypical ideological vote breakdown fits in with what you expect to be a theme for the rest of the term in some pending criminal decisions. What decisions are you thinking about?
1: So The one I'm really keeping an eye on is a case that was argued way back in October called Gundy, which has to do with delegation of authority from Congress to the Attorney General to set the rules for uh, sex offender laws. And again, this is one of those settings where, generally speaking, it's liberals who are very in favor of agencies having broad power and being able to take delegations from Congress in general terms and then run with it. But in the criminal setting, that means the attorney general has authority to define a law more broadly to encompass more criminal activity. And so um, I think the liberals there are perhaps struggling with how broad the rule should be to limit state power here. And likewise, the conservatives, it's a sex offender case. So that's often the type of criminal that everybody's um, kind of eager to, to be concerned about, but again, the broader principle of delegation of power from Congress to agencies turns this case into one that's, that's going to be really interesting to see. And the court has actually taken a very long time, an unusually long time, ruling on it after hearing the argument in October. So I think there's probably a lot of um, uh, split ideologically in, in sorting this out. The other two cases I have an eye on in this respect one involves. The double jeopardy clause and what's known as the dual sovereignty doctrine uh and that again often kicks in views of state and federal power in ways that change the usual ideological divides um in the criminal justice space and then last but not least there's another one of these supervised release cases but it has to do with um what decisions judges can make versus juries that's been an issue for literally 20 years that we've seen different coalitions of justices on whether they're more functional they think judges should be able to do stuff without worrying too much about the formalities of how they do it or more formalistic and think that, no, the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial extends in all sorts of ways, uh, even to sentencing settings. And so um, Haymond and and Gamble are the names of the cases I just referenced, and those two are ones that I'm keeping an eye on and I'm excited to see how the court sorts them
0: out. All right. Well, we're excited with you, and we will check back with you when they do to see if there are any unusual alignments. Thanks so much. That's Douglas Berman. He's a professor at Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.